We've come to the end of the story. For the last three weeks, we have been following the story of this ordinary family that, as the first verse tells us, lived in the time of the judges. This family that left the promised land for Moab because of a famine. And while they were in Moab, they experienced heartbreaking and devastating loss. The father that went, remember there was four that went, uh, uh, mom and dad and two boys. The father, Elimelech, died there in Moab. The two sons then got married to Moabite women, but then they died as well. And eventually, more than 10 years after they left, because they had heard that God visited his people and given them food back in Israel, this is chapter 1, verse 6, Naomi, the widow of Elimelech, comes back to the promised land. But the twist in the story is that one of her widowed daughters-in-law, Ruth, comes back with her, an act of extreme loyalty and devotion, and really a reflection of God's loyalty and devotion toward us. But all of the men of the family, all of the providers are dead. And so you have this poor widow and her outsider to the promises, because she's a Moabite daughter-in-law, coming back, and they come back in poverty. And for Naomi, she comes back particularly in shame. Naomi describes her feelings when she says in chapter 1, verse 13, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You feel that way sometimes? Or verse 21, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And she says she's bitter. In fact, she tells the, her lady friends to call her bitter. And she's especially bitter against the Lord. We're drawn into the story and sympathize with Naomi's bitterness. After all, she had just lost her entire family. But reading between the lines there, we noted that there was an underlying faithlessness in this family, particularly with the father maybe as he led the family, by leaving the promised land in the first place and by not trusting in God's promises that he would always provide for his people. When there was a famine, Naomi's husband decided to take matters into his own hands. Now, someone rightly pointed out to me after the first week that we shouldn't be too hard on Naomi. She may have just been following her husband out of submission, and and that very well may be true, and we have to give her that. But the fact is, when she comes back, she's bitter at God for bringing her back empty. Even as she says that, she's forgetting the fact that her daughter-in-law came with her. She says, I left full and I came back empty. Now in contrast to Naomi in chapter 1 is Ruth. She, uh, ironically as a Moabite, boldly and courageously declares her loyalty to Naomi and her faith in the God of Israel. See that in verses 16 and 17. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. We noted that she's converted to God. This is a conversion story. She, she leaves her old life. She leaves her family. She leaves her people to start a new life in a new country with her mother-in-law, Naomi. It's an amazing and unexpected act of faith on Ruth's part. And in chapter 2, we see that God is involved in this situation with this ordinary family. The Lord has brought me back empty would not be the final word. God was going to provide. 
And he uses a man named Boaz. Naomi and Ruth were in a place where they needed a favor. They were without food and without a provider. And so they needed someone to go above and beyond duty to provide what they needed. And they found favor from Boaz. He let Ruth onto his field. And he did more than that. He gave her way more food than was required for him by the law and way more food than Ruth and Naomi could even eat at one time. It says she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. The emptiness is starting to be filled by God himself. He is providing unexpected and undeserved favor. Another word for that is grace to those two widows through a kind and gracious man named Boaz. But in chapter 3, we added another layer to the story. Chapter 2 ends with the words, and she, talking about Ruth, she lived with her mother-in-law. That's how chapter 2 ends. But that line sets up the fact that God is not done yet. He's not just out to fill the emptiness of Naomi and Ruth's stomachs. He's going to fill Naomi's feeling of emptiness of family and of children and of offspring. And he's going to use Ruth and Boaz for that purpose as well. And so that starts developing in chapter 3. But we still have some suspense that's still left by the time we get to the end of that chapter. And that last remaining suspense has to do with someone called a kinsman redeemer. A strange law for our ears here in the 21st century, but a law in which God makes a way to provide for widows once their husbands died. And a way to preserve or to to perpetuate someone else's or someone's name in that community. I remember in For Israel, someone's name or reputation was important. The law has to do with a close relative of a deceased man who would marry his widow so that there would be offspring and so that the name of the dead would, in a sense, stay alive. But the suspense in chapter 3 is whether Boaz would be that guy. That guy that would get to marry Ruth. In chapter 3, verse 12, just put your eyes on that verse for a minute before we go to chapter 4. After Ruth basically proposes to Boaz, so this is already a little different, Boaz says, It is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer that is nearer than I. According to to God's law, which Boaz was very committed to keeping. He was a godly man, as we pointed out. There was someone else who had first dibs on marrying Ruth. And so the suspense is, will Boaz and Ruth get together? And how possibly was that going to happen? As readers, that's really what we're all hoping for by this point. If this was a romance novel we'd be left wondering whether Ruth was going to get her man and whether Boaz was going to get his gal. But this is not a romance novel, thankfully. This is a story about God and our faith toward him and his loyalty and his kindness toward his people, toward us. I've been talking about the fact that this is a story of God providing. I mentioned that word often already. God providing for Naomi and Ruth. If you expand that word, provide, 
you get the word providence, or as we pronounce it, providence. This is the story of God's providence, of God working behind the scenes. This is a good definition of providence. God working behind the scenes, so not through miracles, to accomplish his grand purposes by providing for his people in ordinary, again, not miraculous ways. By providing for his people in ordinary ways. That's exactly what's happening here. And we see that by the time we get to the end of chapter 4. God would providentially fill the emptiness that Naomi was feeling in amazing ways. So with all that as background, let's go to chapter 4 of the book of Ruth. The last words of chapter 3, we mentioned the last words of chapter 2, the last words of chapter 3 have Naomi telling Ruth, the man, talking about Boaz, the man will not rest, but will settle this matter today. So let's find out how Boaz settles the matter in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 4. And then we'll see what God had in mind for this story starting in verse 13. But let's read those first 12 verses together first. Just follow along as I read. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. And so Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And so I thought I'd tell you of it and, and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction, though one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, your witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Malon. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So here's how Boaz settles this issue. Here's how Boaz gets the girl. Brad Brandt tells the story of he got one of those, um, you know, those lists where it has kids say the craziest things. This was a group of seven to ten year olds that were asked questions about marriage. And one of the questions was, 
How do you decide who to marry? How do you decide who to marry? Ten-year-old Alan said, you got to find someone who likes the same stuff. Like, if you like sports, she would like it that you like sports and should keep the chips and dip coming. (laughs) Smart guy. You know, you kind of wonder a little bit about his dad, but smart guy. A ten-year-old Kristen had a more realistic and somewhat more spiritual answer. Remember, the question was, how do you decide who to marry? And she said, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all, way before. And then you get to find out later who you're stuck with. (laughs) Again, you wonder what kind of experience influenced her answer here, but, um, but at least she had some idea that God has something to do with it. Who marries whom? And in the book of Ruth, we see God behind the coming together of Boaz and Ruth too. We see that in the response to the elders, or of the elders, as they bless Boaz with the blessing of God. But even Boaz shows his faith in God by making sure that he's following God's law. Even at risk of losing the right to Ruth. Did you notice that as I read it? Like I said, this is a bit of a strange law, but it's really there to make a provision for the family of the man who died, especially his widow. It's there to preserve and to perpetuate the name of the dead through offspring, and then to provide for the widow through a husband, through a provider. If you're interested, you can read about those laws in Leviticus 25 or in Deuteronomy 25. But Boaz comes along here, and and he knows that there is a closer relative that has the first uh, rights of refusal on Naomi's property and on Ruth herself. And so instead of ignoring the law, he goes to great lengths to make sure he's on the up and up, even though it comes with with a very real risk of not getting the girl. And so Boaz goes to the gate of the city of Bethlehem, the gate is uh, the place where public transactions were made. Where I grew up in in Winnipeg, uh, whenever they signed a famous hockey player, and that only happened twice in the last 30 years, not like Edmonton who wins the draft every single year and never gets better, Um, but where I grew up, whenever they signed a famous hockey player, that player would sign his contract right at the corner of the main uh, intersection in Winnipeg, right on Portage and Main. And this is kind of the same thing here. In Bethlehem, which is where this was, much smaller than Winnipeg, everyone would have passed by there when they'd go between their parcel of land and they'd they'd come back to the town or if they'd go the other way. And so Boaz waits for this redeemer at the gate. There's the biggest place of traffic. You'd have to go through there if you're coming into the city or out of the city. And so he wanted to make sure that everyone knew this transaction was on the up and up, whichever way it went. So, the closer redeemer eventually shows up. Boaz presents the situation, or at least at first, the part about acquiring the land, and the guy just jumps at it. He says, yeah, I'm in. Sounds great, I'll redeem it. Now, I think he saw, at first here, a really sound business transaction. He saw that there was money to be made, but then Boaz hits him with part two. You know, friend, if you do that, you also get Ruth. That's also part of the deal. But when he said that, it didn't sound like that good of a deal anymore. There was an initial cost for the land, 
but that was okay because it was going to yield probably profit later on. And maybe even for his kids later on. He might have had children already. Might have been married already. Of course, in those days. So if they were married once, even if he was a brother, he'd be able to marry again, according to that law. But acquiring Ruth, for him, was a whole other thing. Now he'd have to marry her, and she'd have kids, and when those kids got older, everything would go to them. And he'd be left with nothing. He'd have to take care of Ruth, he'd have to take care of Naomi, he'd have to take care of the kids, but in the end, he wouldn't get any of the profits. And it might even harm his future opportunities. Look what he says. He says, lest I impair my own inheritance. Now, we have to realize that he, he did have every right to refuse, according to the law. So he's not totally out of order here, but there are some hints in this text that he really is only in it for himself, and that his motives are self-focused. What's in it for me? The biggest hint is that we never find out his name. The author tells us every other, every other person's name here, and, but here it's all very impersonal. The narrator just calls him the Redeemer. Boaz just says friend. Some commentators trans, uh, translate that word friend as Mr. So-and-so. He basically stays nameless. The other clue is in the way he responds there in, in verse 6. He says, I cannot redeem it for myself. Listen to the pronouns here. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Notice that it's all focused on himself. I, myself, I, my, my, I. This Mr. So-and-so is just thinking about himself. He's worried about the bottom line. He's sized up the situation, and he wants to play it safe. Boaz, on the other hand, we've already seen, is very benevolent. He's, he's concerned for Naomi and Ruth. He provided food to overflowing there in chapter 2. And now he wants to provide redemption. Boaz is willing to absorb the cost to himself and to his reputation. He's willing to pay the price. He's willing to take the risk. He's willing to be that redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. He's willing to make sure someone else's name lives on, Elimelech and, and Ruth's husband, Malon, rather than be concerned about his own renown and his own reputation. It all kind of brings to mind another redeemer, doesn't it? Jesus didn't have his own self-interest in mind when he redeemed us. Philippians 2, verse 6 says, Though he was in the form of God... He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. All this condescension. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now look at what God does there. He, he gives Jesus a name. Interesting, isn't it? Like Ruth, this is all about a name. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Boaz, and to a much greater extent Jesus, do not live for themselves. 
They gave up themselves. Those verses that I just read in Philippians start off with the words, have this in mind in yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus who made himself nothing. We are to have that kind of attitude. We can be like that too if we've been born again. We, we naturally live for our own self-interests. And of course that natural man still shows up in our attitudes. But Boaz was a man of God. And Jesus was God, and we are children of God. We can't, of course, redeem people from their sins. Only Jesus could do that. But like Jesus, and because of Jesus, we can, and we are actually called to, die to ourselves and to look out for the interests of others. We can take risks then to to serve others because we know that Jesus has gone before us and that Jesus has our back. So the closer relative basically says, you go for it, Boaz. It's all yours. (laughs) The land and Ruth. Verse 7 explains the custom that made this kind of transaction official back in those days. And so the customs had changed by the time this is written. Um, So verse 7 says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one draws off a sandal and gives it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Now, we might not do the sandal thing anymore. It sounds a little weird to us. But we make a handshake deal. Or we sign our name to it. And that's exactly what happens here. The witnesses are there. It's an official deal, and Boaz gets the girl. Yay. It's done. (laughs) Verses 11 and 12 record a beautiful prayer from the people that witnessed the whole thing. And with that prayer, we see that this is not just a man-to-man business transaction, is it? God is in this. And he now has to act to complete the intent of this transaction. God has to now bring offspring from Ruth. And so they pray. Look at verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratha and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Ruth was the next in a long line of women to whom God in the Bible supernaturally gave children. And there's a number that come after Ruth as well. But, but let's not forget that Ruth was married to Malon for about 10 years before she died, yet no children. But God gave her, and that should all then remind us of someone like Sarah, who had no children as well. But God gave her Isaac when she was 90. <laughs> there's no explanation for something like that apart from God. And in this prayer from the elders... They say, may the Lord make the woman like Leah and Rachel who together built up the house of Israel. Now remember, Leah and Rachel, they couldn't have children at first either. But eventually God uses them to mother, uh, and sometimes they use another lady to be part of that. Strange again. But she uses them to mother the 12 sons of Jacob who would then make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And so God is about to do something for Ruth as well. God would use Ruth's offspring to provide something much greater. In fact, he would use Boaz and Ruth to provide a greater redeemer. And so Boaz settles the matter of the closer redeemer there in verses 1 to 12. But God is 
providentially involved with this ordinary family in these ordinary circumstances to settle the matter of a greater redemption. So look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord. These are the same women that Naomi said, Call me bitter. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So interesting to me here how the book of Ruth closes with these verses. This is the end of the story. It, it ends with those Precious words there at the beginning of verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. There it is. Boaz does get the girl. And that's the great ending we've been waiting for. It's, it ends the story of this family. It fills out the suspense. Remember chapter 2 ended with Ruth lived with her mother-in-law. But now it says Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Boaz provides Naomi with food. And now he provides Naomi with a new son in some way, and Ruth with a new husband, namely himself. But that's not the last word, is it? This ending is in some ways a beginning. It's actually a story that keeps going. It's a story that keeps going because the Bible doesn't end here. The end of the story could really kind of be a summary of the whole Old Testament. Why would I say that? I say that because the Old Testament points to the coming of a final Redeemer, a final Savior. The Old Testament foreshadows and points to what is to come. And God will provide something much better. But the end of Ruth not only foreshadows the New Testament and a Redeemer, it's also actually a bridge of sorts to the New Testament. Because Ruth doesn't end with Ruth and Boaz, it ends right where the New Testament starts. Ruth ends and the New Testament starts with a birth. And with a baby. Ruth and Boaz don't end this story. God is going to end this story. Look again at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. The other thing that's interesting to me in this chapter is that neither Naomi nor Ruth talk in this chapter. They don't say anything. They're passive here. But this story ends with God being active. This is a story of God's providence. You can see that there in verse 14, in the words of the women to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. God has provided redemption for Naomi. But this is not only for Ruth, it is not only for Naomi. The son that has been born would be part of a line that God is using to provide the greatest redemption. 
This is not only the son that Naomi needed. This son would be part of a line that would lead to the birth of, first of all, King David. That's how Ruth ends. Ruth happens in the days of the judges, remember? Days in which there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But this son that was born to Boaz, and Ruth, the outsider, and Naomi, would eventually would lead eventually to God providing a king that would be Israel's great hope. Through Ruth, there would be a king in Israel, where before there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But also, through the line of Boaz and Ruth, another son would be born. This little ordinary place, this little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, would produce another son. Verse 17 says, a son has been born to Naomi. Listen to Luke 2, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this Savior, Jesus, would provide the greater redemption. Matthew 1 has the same names that are listed in Ruth 4, from Obed to David. But that list keeps going, and further down it says, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and the Jacob, the father of Joseph, Sorry, Nathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. God was doing something special in the lives of this ordinary, but eventually faithful family. He was providing a savior that would purchase, acquire with his blood, all those that would repent and put their faith in Christ. And the redeemed would be called sons and daughters of God. The story of Ruth actually reaches all the way down to you and to me. We are included in this genealogy. Ruth's family becomes our family. Ruth's faith leads to our faith. Like Ruth, we too are outsiders to God's promises. In fact, Romans tells us we are enemies of God. But when we leave the ways of the world and the sin that pervades the world, and when we declare our allegiance to God through Jesus... When we leave our false gods, we too can become part of this family. So if you have not left, if you have not repented from your sin and trusted in our great Redeemer Jesus, I would encourage you to do that today. If you have not done that, like Naomi, you will feel a continual sense of emptiness. But the grace of God is such that he wants to fill our emptiness. That's what this whole progression of Ruth is all about. This is a story of Naomi, even though she blamed God, even though she was bitter, even though she doubted God's goodness, even though she said that that she left Bethlehem full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. God was working to reverse that situation. He was working to fill that which was, was empty. He took a no-name Moabite outsider, a foreigner, and used Ruth to perpetuate the name of Naomi's husband. The land was empty of a king, but through Ruth, God filled that emptiness with a king. Naomi returned to Bethlehem alone without any men. God would give Naomi a son. A son that led to another son named David and another son named Jesus. In Ruth 1, Naomi does not see God's goodness. In Ruth Ruth 4, her friends say, Blessed be the Lord. They go from lamenting her loss to celebrating her God-given grandchild. Naomi goes from feeling empty to having a child on her lap. She goes from bitterness to joy. She found death in Moab. She gets a restorer of life in Bethlehem. 
what turned out as a story, or what started out as a story of great loss, turns into a story of great gain. But God does this for us too. Doesn't he? God is always filling our feelings of emptiness with good things. We just need to keep trusting him. Shouldn't say we just. That's not as easy as it sounds. It's not easy to trust the Lord. But we can be encouraged from a story like Ruth to keep on doing that. Sometimes that'll mean taking what seem to us to be risks. Sometimes that'll mean being willing to suffer loss, to leaving the people that you love sometimes, in order to follow in faith what God would have us do. That's what Boaz did. That's what Ruth did. God is working God is working behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes for you, for his own glory. And God is providing. He has already provided a redeemer. But he is right now continually conforming us and changing us, his sons and daughters, into the image of God. And he is working to bring all things to a final completion when he sends his son to come to earth and establish his kingdom. We come to him empty, but he fills us and he satisfies us with good things. Blessed are the poor in spirit, or in other words, blessed are the empty, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God provides a redeemer. In his providence, God provides a child for Naomi, so that through another child, we all would become children of God. Fanny Crosby expresses our joy in a hymn, and I close with these words. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy. His, what? Child. And forever I am. Let's bow together in prayer.